When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have with this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big and therefore we should. Doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. And this podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Patrick Berglund, co-founder and CEO of Zenetta. To make a very long kind of complex story short, both of us found it very peculiar and inefficient that so many container boxes delivering 70% of global trade were traded, bought and sold with almost no visibility, almost no transparency. As it became kind of technologically possible to make it transparent, the incentives for doing so haven't been there. It's two problems. There's a lack of transparency in a market that's highly volatile. And secondly, the way they're buying and selling is absolutely crazy inefficient, right? Now, in order to solve anything about the second problem, we have to provide visibility and transparency. What we're doing is that we're delivering data and insights that allows them to reflect and think differently. The biggest things that a lot of our customers will see now over the next couple of years is, is that transition of, of like being an online information platform to also allowing them to change the way they buy and sell. This is Patrick. He is the co-founder and CEO of Seneta, an Oslo-based company that's created a price comparison platform for containerized freight in order to transform the way the shipping and logistics industry are buying and selling. Patrick is a logistic and tech enthusiast and possesses a true passion for modernizing business processes related to logistic procurement and supply chain. His experience came from working several years for Kuhn & Nagel and from his work as a co-founder of Nordilog, a logistics consulting firm. Zenetta was founded in 2012 and has grown in the meantime to be the top worldwide source to compare shipping rates against the market average, market highs and lows. The way Zenetta has achieved this is through the concept of crowdsourcing, thereby turning negotiation powers from sellers to buyers, hence transforming the way the industry operates. And this inspired me. Hence I invited Patrick to my podcast. We explore what is required to completely turn the dynamics of a market, turning the power from the supply side to the buy side, but beyond that, giving both sides exponential value back in return. In the light of that, we discuss the role of creating momentum, the essence of data, and the impact technology can make. By listening to this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, how solving massive market problems can be achieved by looking in the other direction. Secondly, 
Why even with the most advanced technologies available, a lack of something as simple as relevant data can break all your ambitions? And thirdly, that overcoming inertia can be the biggest hurdle to introduce the most brilliant products into the market. So Patrick, to get started, can you introduce yourself? Give a little back, bit of background about you know, how this all started and then what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, sure. I mean, so Patrick Berglund, basic uh, info, I guess. I'm uh, founding CEO of Senera and my background, just to give you uh, some context on that, is that I've been working within the logistics world, right? So I, after finishing wrapping up school, I went uh, directly to work for a company called Kudenagel. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. More Usually people are more acquainted with DHL or maybe... I know that. I know Schenker, that. Right? Yeah, but Kudenagel is the world's largest freight forwarding company within ocean freight. Within Kudenagel, I met with my co-founder, Thomas Sorbo, And to make a very long kind of complex story short, both of us found it very peculiar and inefficient that so many container boxes delivering 70% of global trade were traded, bought and sold with almost no visibility, almost no transparency, right? Now, if you think about prices going up or, or down all the time, meaning it's a volatile market that is opaque, then you can try and put together how difficult it is to be a buyer in that kind of market. Yes. And, and to me, whether we're talking like 2010 or 2020, having commodities like this, this is like milk and bread, right? And one box is equal to the next. When you simplify it, just to be very specific on that, it looks, looked for us and felt for us very strange that it wasn't more transparent and we couldn't find more, couldn't access market info more efficiently than by using emails and phone calls, right? So. The whole yeah. dynamic there between the buyers and the sellers were, were awkward to us coming from school and, and being, you know, used to Googling stuff. So but what is the few, impact of that? What, what did it result in? Why? Well, well what is that non-transparency, that non-visibility? How well, did it end up as a, as a problem for companies? Well, to, to begin with, it's, it's natural that it begins like that, right? Containers were introduced in the 50s, 60s, right? Yeah. So it was introduced and then you would have owners or ship brokers or whatever negotiating a price with the customer, right? Simplified story here, right? And then as things scale, they stayed on trading between each other, right? Human to human, right? Fax machines involved and then... We used to joke about the biggest invention over the last 30 years being the transition from fax machines to emails. But there's, there's actually almost some truth in that. But, and, and this is a very relationship-driven industry, right? So but what I think is more important to, answer, uh, important to answer your question is that as it became kind of technologically possible to make it transparent, the incentives for doing so haven't been there. From the selling side, if I were selling coffee beans to you and I were the only one selling coffee beans and you didn't have any reference points to what it should cost, I would dictate the market. I would tell you what it costs, right? Now, if you come, came to me and say, hey, can you make that pricing a bit more transparent? Because 
I want to see what the other customers are paying, I would say, screw you, right? <laughs> what kind of incentive do I have to, to provide that visibility? So, and this is also why I think our story is somewhat beautiful because I believe that fundamentally in any market, demand decides how it's going to look. It just takes time. Supply will always go where demand is, right? So the simplest analogy I can give you is if no one buys cheese, no one is going to produce cheese, right? It's, it's as simple as that. Supply demand. So what I thought, and together with my co-founder, is that if we looked at this landscape from the buying side and selling side, we would need to go to the buying side in order to discuss transparency. They would want transparency, right? And this is where we, like uh, 2012, 13, came up with the idea that we can, we can get all this pricing data if we just crowdsource it from the buyers. Now, the buyers typically today, as can you see on our websites, will be anything from Continental Tires to, to Electrolux or Nestle or, you know, Unilever. Any company that buys, uh, owns the products and needs to buy the transportation, right? Yeah. And this was our starting point. But now, if you think back, in the beginning, we went to customers and we said, you have a proprietary data set. You have a contract with either a shipping line or a freight forwarder. Yeah. Now, I know that you are annoyed or burdened or troubled with the lack of transparency. I can fix that if I can get that proprietary data set. Now, and, and, and by the way, I, I also need another 15, 20, maybe 100, 200 of those companies to give me that data. Then you will get some value back. So for the first two and a half years, that chicken and egg problem, that kind of running in, a, in the hamster wheel was a nightmare because we would get data, but it would be from Santos to Rotterdam or Newark to Mombasa. So it didn't help me in order to tell them where the market is because there's so many combinations, not only like A to B, but you know, container types, contract durations, endless things, right? And that, that was just two and a half years running, running like crazy. We did these, we built like software on top of LinkedIn that scraped LinkedIn for first name dot last name at company domain. And then we bombarded, we had three pieces running on, on our individual accounts, right? 24 seven scraping out that contact details. This is beautiful because it was, this is a quite, quite a lot of years ago, right? We scraped it out based on like, give us companies with more than 10,000 employees based in Europe or US. Then look for these titles, like global head of supply chain and so forth. And then we sent out like 70 emails to a company with personnel that could be the right ones. And we, we didn't customize it more than being like there. And then we hit the name and then the rest was the same. So they would usually forward it to the same guy who would then go nuts about all these identical emails. But the beautiful thing is that if you're a young startup, right? You pick up the phone and you say, I'm terribly sorry. I'm desperately trying to reach you because you're the one responsible, right? And we built this new product that I want you to have a look at. I want your expert opinion about it. And yeah. people respond very nicely to that. Like yeah. asking for forgiveness is way, way better than asking for permission, right? Until LinkedIn kicked us out because, I mean, my profile was visiting like 5,000 people a week. Right. 
So yeah. then we had to go back and say, I'm sorry to LinkedIn. We didn't know that wasn't allowed. We were this small startup in Oslo and they were super kind. They let us back in if we stopped using it like that and then rather paid for a subscription that would support similar activity, right? And yeah, I mean, after a couple of years, two and a half, we started seeing some level of critical mass in our user base. So we started having visibility into the, like the main traded trade routes in the world. So, you know, Far East into Europe, Far East into US. Yeah. And from the, there on out, we actually productized stuff and started selling. And the beautiful thing with this, you know, crowdsourcing structure, this network is that it took us these two and a half years to reach 2 million prices. And then the subsequent like two and a half years, the 2 million grew to like 45, 50 million. Wow. Because like, it was very clear in that chart, it was difficult to get to that kind of level. And then it just started taking off because all of a sudden you provided value. Yeah. So the big idea was to, to create buyer-side transparency where it wasn't available. Yeah. But, hold and, on. And, but what is the opportunity now that you have it? Yeah, what, yeah, what can the market do with this? This is what I like about our journey. So if I look back to our first investment deck, me and Thomas said it's two problems. There's a lack of transparency in a market that's highly volatile. And secondly, the way they're buying and selling is absolutely crazy inefficient, right? Yeah. Now, in order to solve anything about the second problem, we have to provide visibility and transparency. So what I think I'm kind of like most satisfied with is that we had a long play. Like we have to go through these different steps. Yeah. Working with the buyers to begin with, to create this transparency before, in the end, we're going to have buyers and sellers using our market data, acknowledging that this is actually the market. When you have buyers and sellers doing that, then why on earth would you buy and sell in the same similar old-fashioned way you used to do? So this is where we're like halfway on our journey, because what we said is that we want to create a proper dent in this industry, Right. And you don't do that by making it transparent. You do it by changing some fundamentals of how it works. And yeah. we said that we're going to change the way they buy and sell. Because the way they buy and sell today is typically through uh, an RFQ process. You know, they run a tender, a bidding event. So the average bidding event takes about six months yeah. for these companies from when they start to when they give away their business. Right? Yeah. So this means that for six months plus minus, they spend their time and so many suppliers' time to identify which partners at which price. We know which price at any given trade route, at any given time. Now, once the shippers, the, 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 the demand side joined our platform, they started preaching our cause because they would take this information with them to the suppliers and say, eh, eh, Tokyo to Sydney is down 30%. It's not a price increase, which you're giving me, right? That, that flips the balance, you know, of the scale so that the suppliers had to start enjoying in order to have the same level of visibility into the market. True. Now, this is where we're at today. We have both buyers and suppliers on our platform. That means that if they acknowledge this to be the truth, a true reflection of the market, then we can start solving our second problem. And last year, we actually won and secured two, two deals, the two first deals we've ever had, where they do not discuss pricing anymore. They're indexed to pricing. So we take care of pricing for them. 
means securing that no one is ripping anyone off. Uh-huh. Right? This means that the buyers do not have the best price. They don't have the cheapest, absolute lowest rate in the market. And the buyer, uh, sellers do not like skim everything they can from the customer. But they can focus on a five-year horizon instead of that annual maximum timeline. Yeah. So if you really start talking, talking about long-term value and you can now start to really look at supply chain optimization instead of ha- haggling back and forth on a few, I don't know, 50, 100 US dollars per box. So to me, that makes complete sense. And that takes away and really fundamentally change how they buy and sell. But again, last comment. Sorry, I'm, I'm preaching here. If you think about the long journey we had to go through in order to kind of get anywhere, position ourselves anywhere close of doing this, it's, it, that's what really makes me proud of what we saw in the beginning as potential problems to solve and then the roadmap of how to get there. Then we've had X amount of terms, no U-turns, but like left and right and that was wrong and adjusted. But yeah, definitely looking better than it ever has is, is, is kind of what I'm saying. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, so who is your typical, yeah, who's the key person that, you are, that you're augmenting in this place? It's on the one side, of course, it's someone in the procurement department. Yeah, and all these companies are somewhat differently structured. You know, you will have head of indirect or someone's name, logistics procurement, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But they usually have anything from, like, say, a couple of guys running the show to a team of five, ten people involved in it. Yeah. Some are centralized, some are decentralized. So it's very, very different from company to company. Interesting. So it started with with coming from the industry yourself, working with uh, your co-founder in the same company and and understanding or kind of asking out loud, why is this happening the way it's happening? So... On your on your journey uh, from the aha moment till to where you are right now, what what were yeah special moments that that resulted in the tipping point or the yeah the the big impact moments? I think I think this whole like the, the biggest surprise to me has been how how important and how much of a like decisive factor it was to have demand with you so let me give you a couple of like anecdotes we very early on we reached out to for instance the shipping lines and the biggest forwarders and we said like this is what we aim to build do you want to do you want to invent stuff with us and be innovative and use technology and i even i've saved an email from one of the biggest shipping lines and, and family owners where it reads and this is our early days. The email reads, and this is a, through, through someone I managed to get like an introduction. And it reads, these guys are trying to meet, eat at our lunch table. We will not meet them. Today, we're doing business. So it's, it's a few of these stories. And, and the only reason, we're not doing business because we've had this great idea. We're doing business because demand says this is what we want to see in, in the future in this industry. And, and really to have my head wrap around how important that has been is, I think, the, kind of like the biggest surprise. It's not like one decisive thing that made everything turn, but it's, it's the accumulated effect of all of these buyers embracing uh, our software. Yeah, it's truly starting from the customer problem. 
yeah. and then working back towards a solution rather than taking te technology. Because I assume you use things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah, and many companies, many companies, they, they, they start with that technology just because of starting with the technology. <laughs> exactly. And I, I, like we don't have an IP on anything we've done. That is not the unique thing about Sonera. The unique thing about Sonera is the network. It's, yeah. That's like the barriers of entry for anyone else. Because these are still proprietary data sets that only works once they're accumulated en masse, right? In large, large scale. And then there's a lot of intelligence in terms of how we can ingest that data, normalize it, cleanse it, and all of that. And how we run like outlier detection and, and what kind of algorithms we're using there and so forth. But really it's not like... It's not groundbreaking. When I see companies creating these insane robots that can open doors and walk stairs, I think like that's, that's proper innovation for you. This is like, we're, we're ripping principles off from other industries and seeing what's working and then applying that in this industry. And it's, it's groundbreaking in this industry, right? That's the art of innovation at the end, picking those ideas from other industries and combining them in a relevant way. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to complicate things any more than it, what, what's needed. I mean, I want to do what the customers need, right? And as long as that supports our mission of changing like how things get bought and sold, then I'm, uh, yeah, I don't see the need for, for just following these buzzwords for any purpose. It has to have a meaningful purpose, right? I agree. Yeah. Fran, what were the hard choices you made? Yeah, I can tell you about in the beginning, when people started kind of realizing that we have a cool concept going on a lot, then this is a lot of people is reaching out, right? From all various kind of different industries wanting to do the same in that and blah, 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 right? Or applying whatever artificial intelligence on parts of what we're doing or blockchain, all these things, tons of people are reaching out. In the beginning, we have a had a tendency because of, I think, inexperience basically to be inspired, eager about all these opportunities, right? So let's say we were five people in the organization, five, and we were trying to take on 20 different opportunities going like left, right, and center. So at some point we realized, shit, we're getting nothing done properly. And the only thing we're actually doing is, is good and we believe is really decisive is that we, we have to collect price data. So we kind of said like everything else away, we, take, we clean the table completely and we source price data. It's our core mission in life and we're going to do that to we have critical mass. And once we started getting that kind of laser focused, that's really when I think we, we started succeeding in things. And it's interesting, still today, we kind of do that principle saying, okay, that sounds interesting. Do we really need it? No. All right, then we're going to say a painful no, right? I still want to do everything, right? But it's actually the nose and the, the, the concentration that, that's most valuable, I would say. Exactly. That's why I'm asking the question. What, are you, what were your big nose? <laughs> yeah. Yeah there's, oh, yeah, there's so many of them. But like, we also said no to, to like this year in Q2, we're re releasing our air freight product. We also said no to that for a very long time, even though we internally discussed that we're going to do that at some point. But yeah. we can't give false expectations about when it's going to happen. And now four years, four and a half, five years in, 
Now we've gone out and said, okay, it's going to be released in Q2. So you're shifting from containers by ship to air freight, which yeah. is essentially a different market. We're adding air. Now, this is interesting, right? Air cargo, air cargo is opaque and volatile. Yeah. And it has this unit, uh, like one of the key things to succeed with ocean has been that the container box is a container box. On the air side, they have this weight measurement scale that they're following. So it's, it's like standardized. It's the same way as ocean, but still opaque and volatile in pricing. Now, even more importantly and beautiful from our side is that it's the same buyers and sellers between the cargo owners and the freight forwarders is where all air cargo is bought and sold. And that means that we're, we're kind of, we're moving into another mode of transportation that has the same problem with the same stakeholders. And we we're able to reuse about 70, 80, maybe as much as 90% of our technology. Wow. So ocean space is like a $200 billion industry, right? Air freight is an additional 60, 70. But the only reason why I'm willing to go there is, is it's so complementary in its nature and in the stakeholders that's there, right? Yeah. It doesn't distract you from that perspective. And as a consequence, you can, you can remain the best. Exactly. Fun. Good. Let me see what, what, what was the biggest challenge to overcome beyond the point of coming to that, that, that critical point of having enough data. What was the other thing that was important to Inertia. Inertia in the industry in general, I would say. Like I can give you tons of examples of how this is counterintuitive, right? So let's assume, and this is one of the cases we had early on, a big sporting brand, we put in the data, we analyzed their ocean freight, and they spent about $30 million more than the average. Yeah. More than the average. We fly and meet him. I'm sure I'm, I was so dead certain that we would create a fantastic deal and a good reference, right? Yeah. The person never picked up the phone or met us again. The reason for that is that if he internally bought a software documenting that he'd been buying $30 million above the average with when you're a big ass volume corporation that should be far below, he'd get fired, right? So you have all of these weird things and then last point if like a buyer looks at our tool and thinks shit this might replace parts of my job and I've been enjoying my job for the last 20 years and I'm an expert at that I'm not going to buy that right so you have these things that are kind of counterintuitive even though things makes things better it's not necessarily that a human will decide to do what's best because they have their own incentives to take into consideration yeah. And, and that, that kind of like mindset mentality and, and the whole inertia of the industry, it's really kind of like sat and all of that. Yeah, that, that's been the biggest hurdles to overcome, I would say. Yeah, understandable. How to educate the market, how to, how to move in pace with the market. How quickly can you move? If you move too quick, it breaks. The relationship breaks because it's still humans behind all this in every single organization. Yeah. And these sales processes are immensely long. You think about it. I reach out to one of these big-ass companies that you see on our site. They will have the logistics guys involved, maybe to begin with. But then you line up legal, 
and compliance and procurement yeah. on their end and your IT, you know, it's, it's endless. It's so many stakeholders to massage in order to get in there. That it's yeah. been a big surprise as well. So based on what you've learned there, the, the, the sort of, yeah, the, the tidbits of wisdom that you've gained, what would you advise yeah, CEOs or, or well, the, the head of procurement of large companies out there to do, obviously, to come on the platform? But are there any things they should reconsider? In terms of their business? Or you're asking kind of two different questions here. It was one, what's your kind of like advice to, to CEOs and startups and, and all of that? Or are you asking about how would, you, how would I recommend our customer base to to look at it yeah the customer base first let's let's switch to the to the isv side later on well i think i think we've created something that they have to look at as supportive i will i'm always saying that data is not the data we're working with at least is not taking away the human component Uh what we're doing is that we're delivering data and insights that allows them to reflect and think differently see new opportunities and basically make their job more efficient and and more like data driven so my my recommendation is to look at it from that angle as supplementary to the human component because it doesn't work alone you'll make you'll make suboptimal choices if you look at the data alone if you manage to combine these two things about what we as humans can put on top of data then i believe our product is absolutely beautiful it's really strong yeah, that's where you get into the long-term strategic aspect of the whole deal, which yeah. is what they all want to work on. Yes. <laughs> so I think yeah. that, that's my recommendation to how, how to kind of apply a mindset to what we've done so far. Yeah. And if you look at the, at the industry itself, you've, you've become a startup yourself. Uh, there's, there's many star, uh, well, traditional companies in the world, but also startups. One advice to give to others in terms of how to start and how to succeed? Two things I would say if you're going to go into this space, don't underestimate the complexity of the business. This is not the travel industry changing. This is, this is fundamentally differently. Look into it so that you understand it beyond that and then find the narrow, small starting point that is simple that you can start scaling out from. Because I see too many of these online booking portals that wants to do A to C bookings, and none of them have scaled over the last 10 years at all. And they all realize this, that as soon as they start to look under the lid, it's so immensely more complex to move, let's say, anything from inland Brazil to Mombasa than it is to put a, a passenger on an airplane from Oslo to New York, right? Yeah. So that anal- analogy doesn't work, but I be- do believe that you should look for the simple, small thing to begin with, right? Yeah. yeah. But you started with not something like autom- automated. You started with, with a uh, perspective of let's change the way the business does business. Yeah. Yes. Taking a completely different approach to something that everybody has always been aware of. Everybody was was expecting a horse, you delivered a car. Yes. That mindset is is a fascinating one that I'm always interested to understand. That's a nice analogy. I like that. It's, um, yeah, I don't have a comment to that actually. It stands good for itself. 
But I mean, I think it's a good advice, first of all, also to, to ISV. It's like, don't think in traditional terms, like throw everything away. And how would you start this if it wasn't available? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's also a, a nice approach to it, actually. And, and I mean, and really one thing that once you kind of go into this space, you've got to respect the, the legacy that comes with it, right? And if you're yeah. going to move some of these players in the direction that you want, you can be as, you, your, your solution can be as absolute stellar as you want. But if you can't get the buy-in from them, building that, the relationships and the trust that needs to go into it and also respecting the legacy and heritage that comes with them to move them into the new stuff that you want them with, then you're, then you're screwed. This, yeah. this is what I think is incredibly complex. And this is also what I believe we've done good. We've made sure that we don't piss off people. We were respectful, we're cautious. We're, like, we're trying to get data to support all our funky opinions about how this all works and looks and feels. And then slowly you build these relationships and you start moving together with them. Yeah, completely agree. Nice. So what's next for you? What's next for Xenera? So, I mean, obviously things, you know, we go into air, we, we're going to continue expanding the company, go far east. So I think it's a very like natural progression. The biggest things that a lot of our customers will see now over the next couple of years is, is that transition of, of like being an online information platform to also allowing them to change the way they buy and sell. We're seeing more and more interest from our customer base on that. And the beautiful thing is that we don't need to see that happen within one, two or three or five years. We can just continue. We've already made it happen a little bit and we'll continue exploring how aggressively we can scale on that and how we can develop that offering because that's really where we as founders want to, to take this and where we believe it's, we know it's possible, right? So that is like the the personal aspiration of me, but we can build a big business just on the information side of things. You got to keep in mind that we have like public reference customers like Goldman Sachs, et cetera, that also applies this data. So it's not only about supply and demand buyers and sellers, this whole ecosystem around both modes of transportation, whether it's tech companies, you know, insurance companies, consultancy firms, mm-hmm. they're all there to play and benefit from the same data. And I, of course, I want to be that platform that supplies and, and feeds all, right? But personally, my aspiration is I want to make that then. And in order to make that then, we're going to make sure that that path is followed. Yeah, and the rest is bonus. Yeah, you, yeah. you got a good point there. Because at the end, your platform is, is giving a very accurate in, insight into how demand is increasing or, or declining. Yeah. Which impacts a lot of other things. So if you could ask some. If you could ask a question to the audience, how they could, for example, help you or what, what channels they are working, working on, what would you ask me? If I could ask the audience, I would ask any one of you that want to come live in, in Oslo, Hamburg or New York, and it's intrigued in, in, really, in really working in the industry that, that, from my point of view, is like the main archery of global economy. This is what makes the world tick and go around which most people haven't looked at. So if you're intrigued and inspired of working with this kind of opportunity, like it's one of the last few dinosaurs around. And if that inspires you, I want to ask you to come and apply for one of our jobs. I mean, finding <laughs> good people is the most difficult thing. 
And and working with smart people is the biggest privilege. So then I want to aspire them to come and apply rather than ask anything particular because there's too many things to ask, I guess. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's maybe also a little bit too complicated to to, formulate it into one question. Yeah. Um, This was really inspiring. I I really like the, the approach you've taken the solution you've created and yeah, I mean, for what I see, you are definitely making a dent in this industry. So where can people go if, and find more about you? Uh, say hello. Snedra.com is always a good entrance point. We're usually very responsive to any inbound requests. We host some events. We try to participate at events. Uh, usually I tend to go to the ones that logistics oriented. I do less of the, the startup and, uh, and other things nowadays. And usually that's how I'm available to be reached, to be honest. Okay. So your website, any Twitter account or, uh, or via LinkedIn, or is that something that you, you don't use that often? LinkedIn is beautiful. I prefer LinkedIn, to be honest. Okay, that's good enough. So, uh, Patrick, thank, thank you very much for uh, yeah, this inspiring conversation. Thank you for having me, Tom. Really appreciate your time and for inviting me. It was a pleasure, Patrick. And for everybody else that's listening today, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Patrick Berglund, co-founder and CEO of Seneta. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, And lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise, and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.